Welcome to the HR Room Podcast, the podcast series from Insight HR, where we talk to business leaders from around Ireland and share their advice on how to create the HR systems and workplace culture that's right for your business. For show notes and bonus content, simply visit www.insighthr.ie forward slash podcast. And remember, if you need any HR support, get in touch with us at Insight HR. Whether it's conducting a complex workplace investigation, filling a gap by providing you with a virtual or on-site HR resource, or providing advice via our HR support line, we'll help you resolve whatever human resources challenge your business is facing. Okay, let's get started. Hello and welcome to another episode of the HR Room podcast. As we all know, workplaces thrive when they're environments where all people can feel comfortable, accommodated and free from prejudice and discrimination. However, is this the reality for people with disabilities here in Ireland? Today, we want to mark International Day of Persons with Disabilities, which takes place this weekend on December 3rd, by taking a closer look at the topic of disability inclusion in the workplace and digging deeper into what organisations can do to be truly inclusive for those with disabilities. And to talk about this topic today, we're delighted to be joined by one of the leading voices on this topic here in Ireland, Christabel Feeney, Director of Employers for Change at the Open Doors Initiative. Thanks for joining us, Christabel. How are you? Thank you, Owen. I'm great. It's lovely to be here today. Brilliant stuff. And as always, we're joined by our very own Mary Cullen, founder and managing director here at Inside HR. How are you, Mary? Great, thanks. Enjoyed our uh, our pre-chat, <laughs> which had nothing to do with today's topic, but it was <laughs> a, a great chat. That's it. As always, we like to have a we like to have a chat before we get started. Brilliant. So let's jump into jump right into I suppose what we're talking about today. So, Christopher, I suppose I'd like to start by kind of setting some context. So we all know that obviously disability and the term I suppose kind of inability to work absolutely not linked at all. There's no correlation there at all. But is that kind of reflected in the jobs market? What's the current situation when it comes to disability inclusion and employment here in Ireland? Yeah, so just to give some context, I suppose, um, in terms of Ireland, there is about 650,000 people living in Ireland with a disability. Now, that's based on the last census, which is quite out of date at this stage because of COVID and everything. And we have to wait for for the, the more recent census results to come out. But that's a significant portion of the population. We're talking about one in seven people. So I would just say to people listening to this in the first instance, you know, some people might be listening and, and say to themselves, well, you know, I don't work with anybody with a disability. Uh, and the reality of that is, well, that's just not true because it's it's not possible. If one in seven people are living with a disability in this country, then you w- you do know people with a disability or you yourself are living with a disability but may not identify as having one. The second thing I would say in terms of employment is that you know, even though one in seven people in Ireland are living with a disability, you're actually half as likely to be employed in Ireland um, if you're a person with a disability compared to a non-disabled peer. So that's pretty shocking, you know, um, that those opportunities are not arising as much as they should for people with disabilities. And when we speak about, you know, the ability of individuals with disabilities, like there's a lot of research out there that will speak to the importance of diversity in organisation, the importance of actually having people with disabilities within your organisation, There was a study done by Deloitte, it's the Deloitte Diversity and Inclusion Report 2020, and that found that companies who had a truly inclusive culture, they were eight times more likely to achieve better outcomes. They were three times more likely to be high performing, and they were twice as likely to meet or exceed target. And we also know from the likes of Accenture and Disability In that companies who are disability inclusion champions, who are true champions of disability inclusion, they actually make 28% higher revenue than companies who are not. So this isn't just the right thing to do when we're talking about disability inclusion. If you're an organisation or a business, 
you should be doing this. If, if you want to be successful, if you want to ensure that you have the best possible talent working for you in your organization, then you need to be including the voices of the disabled community. And I would say from an Irish context, okay, I know I've given kind of some stark figures there and talked about the fact that you're half as likely to be in employment. I would say the companies certainly that we have come into contact with since we started our work in 2020 are very open to this. They're very open to looking at their policies, to self-reflection, to looking at the barriers that they're putting um, in front of potential candidates and their existing employees in terms of moving up the ladder internally and really looking to see how can we improve this and how can we make ourselves a much more open and inclusive organisation. I think that COVID-19 and how it kind of impacted all of us on an individual basis and how we came to bring ourselves, all of ourselves to work, whether we liked it or not, you know, working remotely. People had children running around in the background. There was all kinds of things happening. We all had different struggles to different degrees. I think that has created a degree of understanding and empathy within the workplace and within employers that has actually allowed the conversation around what does diversity, equity and inclusion really mean to your organisation? Um, and where does disability fall within that? I think it has opened up that conversation much, much more. And it has really probably added to the culture of organisations within Ireland in, in an employment context. So that is a very rounded answer there. All on that, I hope I've, I've answered it for you. Yeah, no, 100%. I suppose it's, it's kind of a nice segue into my question for yourself, Mary. So as Christabel said there, it goes beyond just what's legally required by law. It's the right thing to do. There's business results and everything. So Mary, I know we all know that there's protections there, legislative-wise, you have protected grounds, reasonable accommodations and that kind of thing. So Mary, it is really kind of the bare minimum when it comes to disability inclusion to kind of start there, but go way beyond the Mary's in there. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, really, you're falling back on the legislation when you have a problem. So that's when you're being discriminated against because you actually have a, a disability. So I wouldn't like to start there. It's about that whole concept, which is, you know, really popular now in or, organisationally, that you can bring your whole self to work, that you shouldn't fear disclosing a disability and that, you know, your employer or potential employer is making it clear that the workplace is inclusive. And, you know, not all disabilities are visible. Uh, a lot of them are invisible. And if you think about a, a population over the course of your life between 18 and 65, um, you know, when most people work, the potential to acquire a disability is there for many people. And, and how you're treated in those moments at that point in your life really matters. And unfortunately, that's where I see employers falling down not accommodating, not being open to the possibility that somebody who has a, a disability, whether you understand it or not, can still contribute to the workplace with, you know, tools or accommodations or flexibility. So it really is about, well, what are we doing? Why are we doing it? Um, and how can we support people as opposed to how can we exit people who have acquired a, a disability during their employment with us, or how do we block people from coming in in the first place? So it's really important to to think about it. And, you know, there are, I suppose, popular 
things that HR are doing at the moment. You know, women in menopause is is very popular. Most organisations are now looking at their offering around that. You know, most organisations are looking at the kind of offerings that they have for certain groups of people. But I, I do wonder, disability doesn't often get the look in that it deserves. It doesn't often get the support it deserves and it's not championed and maybe the same way that gender issues are or other groups that are marginalised in our society or that have especially protected characteristics. 100%. And if we can kind of dig deeper into, I suppose, the kind of getting it wrong side of things before we talk about the the positive steps, which will give a good bit of time to, which would be brilliant. But just talking about, I suppose, kind of getting it wrong. So I suppose when it comes to things like reasonable accommodations, and I'll ask you both this, but I'll come to yourself first, Christabel. We kind of spoke before the call there, before this podcast around I suppose providing kind of reasonable accommodations and how easily it can go wrong. I know we all saw a kind of a well-publicized staff email from a CEO recently to a tech company um, that we don't need to name names. I think we all know the email I'm talking about, but there was a consideration there around kind of long, intense working hours and that kind of thing. But does something like that also fall under reasonable accommodations? Is it, is, does that fall under the bracket of that as well? Yes. Yeah, so what I would say is, okay, in terms of the just to give the context to the requirements right for from a legal perspective under the equality acts the equality acts are actually quite broad so it, it does allow for reasonable accommodations to go quite broad as well like the terminology that's used there it's it's referred to as an appropriate measure and it's meant to help to alleviate a substantial disadvantage due to and this is quite a medical terminology to a medical condition or an impairment so that's broad right now if you're talking about an individual who it's really imperative to them to work specific hours of the day, maybe it's because they're neurodiverse, whatever it might be. I know before the call, when I was speaking to you about an individual I had worked with before who they had low vision, but their their vision was actually impacted by daylight hours. And so they worked in research and they had said, you know, I am really lucky the type of work that I do. It doesn't, I don't have to do you know, the bang on nine to five. I've spoken to my employer. It actually suits me better sometimes to start work, like in the summer, for example, at 6 a.m. And they could do that because actually it was much easier for them to read the screen and all of those things. So under the legislation, yes, like that is, that's allowed for under the legislation because it's been left broad enough to allow, the same way as you could put in a request to to work remotely, Um, you know, and that if you can do your job and you can carry out your job in, in the way that it's intended and achieve what, what needs to be achieved, then there's no real reason for an individual absolutely having to work nine to five or absolutely having to physically be in an office when that, that's not necessary in order for the, jo- the job to be carried out. I would also say in terms of reasonable accommodation, but there's a huge fear amongst employers. Uh, they tend to kind of shut off when they hear reasonable accommodations. Because they automatically think we're talking about ripping down walls, you know, like this is going to be a huge cost. I'm not going to be able to afford that. I'm only a small business. I'm not like the big multinationals. All of these kind of things that come up. And the reality is most reasonable accommodations have absolutely no cost whatsoever. So we're talking about things like that, like, you know, change of working hours, maybe an adjustment to how a task is carried out. Um, it could actually be something as simple as an individual who requires a quieter office space. So not having to do anything, only literally be accommodating to that person. And, and even when there are requests for accommodations that have a cost, 
for the private sector employers in this country, there are supports there from government. So you have things like the Reasonable Accommodation Fund. It's a four-strand fund that actually allows the employer to get financial aid for things like uh, workplace equipment or adaptation. Um, and that's like 6,000, uh, almost 6,500 euro. You've got the personal reader grant for individuals who require a personal reader. You've got the job interview interpreter grant. So if you need, for example, uh, a sign language interpreter, there's a grant for that for the interview. And it actually allows as well for the onboarding stage. And then you've got the employee um, retention grant, which is quite interesting in the context of what Mary mentioned there about employees who acquire disabilities. And she's absolutely right. If you were to look at the last census, it found that 70% of people with a disability, so se- well, 70% of people who identified as having a disability in the census had actually acquired that disability during their working life. Okay, so at the age that a, a person is, is found to be working. So that's a huge proportion. And that grant is, it's a, it's a brilliant grant, to be fair, because there's two stages. You've got uh, the first one, it's two and a half thousand euros which allows for the employer to actually bring in a person and assess what the individual's needs are now that they've acquired a disability, what adjustments need to be made in terms of the role that they're doing. Uh, And then the second stage is for €12,500 so you can actually implement those changes. So there are supports out there um, and I would just urge anyone that's listening to this, employers or human resource people, you know, don't allow the fear of getting this wrong stop you from supporting individuals because that is the worst thing you can do. We are very open in our organisation to taking calls from people. There is absolutely no judgment. This is can be quite a new conversation to some people, can be very daunting and people are really conscious of saying the wrong thing and not wanting to say the wrong thing and also, you know, kind of the, the, the legal ramifications of that. But I would just say to you, you know, be open, ask people what do they need? That's the biggest thing. Just ask people, do you have a requirement? And you can go onto our website as well. We have what's called a reasonable accommodation passport. And that's a really good guide for, you know, your your HR people that they can actually go and reflect on that. And some of the questions that are written in there that they can ask individuals who are coming into the organisation. And the last thing, sorry, that I will say on the reasonable accommodation topic is that sometimes we forget that the reasonable accommodations are not just for employment stage. So if you actually were to look at the legislation, it's also reasonable accommodations for access to employment. So we should, that's an offering that needs to happen before the person's ever taken on. That's an offering that needs to happen at the application stage, at the interview stage. It needs to come in at every single stage of a person coming into contact with you to apply even for a job within the organisation. That's when your obligations begin. It isn't when you've signed a contract. 100%. And that's actually a key part. We'll come back to in a moment because I do want to talk more about that, Chris. So thanks for mentioning that as well. And I suppose, Mary, again, I suppose that probably echoes a lot from what we'd hear. I know Christabel said there, a lot of maybe smaller companies struggle with getting these things right, struggling with the budget. But again, a lot of this stuff can be done for free. And Mary, is there kind of issues around, I suppose, from people we hear today struggle with crafting policies, all this kind of stuff. There is quite a lot to get right. So I'd imagine it can be quite intimidating, Mary, can it? It can do. And we get a lot of calls from HR people, you know, maybe that are tasked with um, diversity and inclusion strategies, policies, action plans. You know, where do they start and what, what should they be doing? And the more popular 
strategies tend to focus away from disability. And as I say to anyone that I speak to, you know, if you're tasked with the diversity and inclusion strategy, then you need to go down through the nine protected characteristics and look at each grouping and see what am I actually doing for each grouping and that we don't just pick gender or uh, race or sexuality or, you know, pick three out of the nine and forget about the others. And disability really does fall under that whole area. So I always urge people to think, what are we doing in each area? If we're looking at a, a, a DNI strategy, um, are we including everything? Are we looking at every grouping? Um, and what can we do? And I know budgets are limited, so I'm, I'm not talking about having a magic wand, but there, there are things that you can do to be open and inclusive of all people. Um, and also, you know, encouraging the people come forward and disclose things that before the pandemic, people were keeping to themselves, like um, mental health issues, like um, disabilities that maybe are unseen, like dyspraxia or dyslexia or, um, you know, those kind of uh, disabilities. And I, I just think for people to perform at their best, for us to have an inclusive organisation, um, these are huge areas and they affect uh man, woman, uh, you know, irrespective of sexuality, race, skin colour, religion, you know, disability affects us all, young, old, it affects us all at, at some point uh, in life. Mm -hmm. 100%. And I suppose just picking up on that piece there around being a, a truly inclusive place to work. Christabel, we mentioned there, going back in the journey, let's say, about that kind of recruitment piece. And it's, again, very important part of the, part of the journey. And it's not separate to, to, to any other part of the journey to keep part of it. So do you have any guidance on that kind of inclusive recruitment piece? What's currently missing? What can companies do with that part of the journey? Yeah, absolutely. So we actually carried out research recently with the um, Atlantic University, Sligo. I keep having to, to get that name right because they've changed their name recently. Um, and the Open Doors Initiative, which is obviously the parent organisation that we work with. But within that research, we actually, we carried it out uh, through the, the lens of all nine grounds, right, of discrimination that's covered by the legislation and really to understand the intersectionality even between those groups. Because as Mary said there, people don't just fall into one category or another. People can be, can have multiple barriers. You know, you could be a, a member of the LGBTQI plus community. You could be, and also be a person with a disability and you also could be a migrant. Um, you know, I previously had an individual contact us for support and they were a migrant for whom English wasn't their first language and they also had dyslexia. So the barriers, there were multiple barriers there and they really had no idea where they could go for support in terms of the job application process here in Ireland and even understand, you know, culturally how things are done here. So there, it isn't just a, um, you know, a, a one one size fits all, but we have to understand that there is intersectionality between the various marginalised groups. So in terms of that research, then I would say that there's kind of six key areas that employers and recruiters um, and your HR professionals need to look at. The first one is the job description. So in terms of the job description, that's usually the first kind of indicator um, 
for people around whether or not they're suitable for the job. And we would always say it's really important when you're putting that together that you're describing the job. You're not describing the individual that you perceive to be the right fish for it. Uh, and that sounds very straightforward, but actually often when you look at job specs, they're literally describing a person that they want. They're not describing the job at hand. It needs to have, you know, competency-based descriptors. We want it to focus on the tasks that need to be done. It needs to be very clear. So, for example, if you were writing your job description, you know, are you going to say that the person is required to have a driver's license? Or is it actually that the person needs access to transport? Um, so detailed things like, you know, energetic. Like, what does that mean? You know, who? what does that really mean? Is speaking about strong communication skills. Well, is it, you know, written communication skills? Do you expect the person to be writing emails? Are they really going to be required to be on the phone? Because we know particularly for people who are neurodiverse, having to make calls can be a real blocker and they can be exceptionally competent individuals who are really excellent at their jobs. But if they think that there's an expectation there to make calls, they'll kind of veer away from it because they prefer to operate through email. Um, so just being very, very clear on that. Another thing I'd say is in the description, talking about the movement. So what are the mobility requirements of that role? What's the built environment of that role like? Salesforce are really good at that. They're, I have to call them out that they're very good. They give information both on the, on the mobility and the movement in the role. And they also give information around the built environment, which is really helpful um, to people when they're applying for those jobs. The next I'd say is the advertising. So really ask yourself, where are you advertising your roles? Are you advertising in the same place you've been advertising for the last 20 years? Because we all know if you keep doing the same thing, you're going to get the same result. And where you're advertising, is that accessible? So is your hiring page accessible? If somebody goes on there with a screen reader, are they actually going to be able to access what you're putting up? Because if you go to apply for a job and it is not accessible, why would you apply for it? You know, they're not speaking to you. So you're you're not going to do that. I then would say the application stage. So again, providing things like alternative formats, that's a reasonable accommodation. So providing alternative formats of how the person can apply, you know, sometimes we go onto sites and we see that they have like, you know, you, you have to click a button to get in to apply. You do it all online. But again, if the person wasn't able to access that with their particular technology, have you given a contact for them? Who did they go to? Could, can you send them a PDF of it or what can you do? The same way I would say constantly reviewing the accessibility of that and then reducing the, the jargon. OK, so put in plain English. There's a tendency for for organizations to use kind of corporate lingo. You know, I remember previously hearing things like, oh, blue sky thinking and saying, I have no idea what that means. Like we just say brainstorming, you know, so really understanding that plain English that works for everybody that works for, you know, a person with disability. It also works for people for whom English isn't their first language. So really, really important. And you can go to the NALA site for that. They give really good guidance on that. Then um, things like the selection. So again, being open to to different kind of applications, you know, being open to different pathways or routes through education. Not everybody will have had the same route through education. Does not mean they're not going to be competent to complete the job. So really focus again on can the person actually complete the role here? Will they be good at completing those tasks? Don't be a set on the specific types of education that's required. Um, responding promptly is really important as well for individuals. And I would say kind of even in that screening process, when people are being shortlisted, being very clear on what adaptations are available to them. And again, asking them if they have any reasonable accommodation requests. Then you're through to interview stage. Again, off the reasonable accommodations. You cannot offer that enough. It should be offered 
at every single stage. I would say that your interviewers need to be trained. So providing your your panel and um, your panel of interviewers with, you know, disability awareness training. So they feel equipped if somebody turns up to the interview, for example, they haven't shared prior to the interview that they have a disability and they share it in the interview. Do they know how to respond to that? Because what they shouldn't be doing is now focusing on the person's disability. They still should continue, you know, acknowledge the person has shared that, thank them for sharing that personal information and then continue on interviewing them about the specific job. They do not need to do an Irish thing of being overly interested in the person's personal circumstances. They just need to focus on the job in hand. And then the last stage I would say is, um, oh, sorry, with the interview too, we would always encourage sharing interview questions. Um, and people sometimes say that's given a, an advantage. Just share them with everybody, right? You want everybody to come to the interview and to show their best selves. It isn't a memory test, you know, give them the questions the, the day before or whatever it might be. And also give them options around the times. We talk about times of work, gives them options around do they want an AM or a PM interview um, and the option to do it remotely as well is hugely important. And then the last is the onboarding. So I would just say to people, don't just decide we've recruited individuals now and we'll all just move on. That is a recipe for disaster. The onboarding is one of the most important stages for anybody who's starting a new role. Make sure that people are equipped. If they're using technology or screen readers, is your onboarding system compatible with that? Check that in advance. You don't want to go through all of this and then lose an individual two weeks after recruiting them. Put maybe a mentor or buddy system in place that somebody actually can assist the individual through that process and explain to them and share with them what your diversity, equity and inclusion policies are. Tell them who your networks are within the organisation if they want to, if they want to join those. Try to be flexible and where possible, look for feedback. You know, I'd say feedback in the interviews. A lot of the time we focus on interviewees getting feedback, but we don't often think about actually asking them what was their experience of being interviewed by the organisation. And they're kind of the key pointers, I would say, for people in, in terms of the recruitment process. Yeah, definitely. So a lot can be done. So I suppose, Mary, like a lot of the teams there are kind of similar to what we'd say about a lot of these kind of things. It's about kind of thinking differently, looking at what's out there, listening to your staff and and training and all that kind of piece, Mary. Like a, it's, it is it is something that can be done if you just think a little bit differently and really elevate the, the company up to that next level of inclusion and that kind of thing if you just approach it in a new way, Mary, isn't it? Yeah, it's not a it's not a box ticking exercise, which unfortunately, when it comes to disability, sometimes that's the approach that is taken. You know, we have a, a certain percentage of people with disabilities that we're going to bring into the organisation, maybe in the public sector, for instance. You know, it, it's a, a public or a semi-state sector. You know, it's not a box ticking exercise. It has to be meaningful. Um, and, you know, using networks, if you have networks or going about setting up networks um, is powerful because you don't have to do all the work yourself. So, you know, I can imagine some of the HR people out there saying, well, look, I'm in a standalone role. Christabel has come up with a list of things that are just aren't doable in our organization. And, and that can be the, the common response from people, you know, yeah, I, I agree and, and I'm supportive of this, of course, of course, you know, we're, we're a very open and inclusive organisation, but we simply can't change our recruitment and selection process to such an extent. That would take me months or years or, you know, and that tends to be the barrier to change as well. Um, and so very much I would be 
looking out there for the supports that where you can go to get information and advice and and you know having someone like Christabel and and the team there able to answer questions in a non-judgmental way and maybe guide people towards how they can do this um it is important i i do believe that you know the world work is changing all the time and the pace of change has been rapid over the last three years. Employees have made clear that they want uh, employers to take into consideration their whole selves. They want to be able to come into the workplace and express who they are uh, and be accepted for who they are, whatever that may be. And they want to be helped and accommodated. And I guess it to be understood that um, you know, people have a life um, and that life and work need to work together, that it's not all about work. And um, that is a very, very clear message that's coming all the time. We talk about, um, you know, messages from powerful CEOs saying, you know, everybody back to the office or, you know, we're, we're changing a policy that we have in place just because we can and we want to do it. Um, but the impact for the individual needs to be factored into all of those decisions as well. And that's not to say that those organizations aren't fantastic in terms of what they've done in that space anyway. They, they may be better than most, who knows. Um, but the policy decisions that are made, the announcements, the statements, what we do at the leadership level actually will influence whether or not we're actually truly inclusive or not. Because if we're to go about uh, adapting age-old processes like recruitment and selection, which really haven't changed a whole heap uh, since I you know, came into the profession, you know, 25 years ago, they really haven't changed. You know, sourcing has changed, maybe. We're automating more. Um, but there are so many tools and ways in which we can now uh, look at adapting our processes to make them more efficient for a start. Um, but, you know, there's there's video interviewing, you know, like you say, Christabel, maybe you, you share interview questions beforehand. I, I think there'd be a number of HR people who'd have struggled with getting their head around that. What, we're going to tell people what we're going to ask them? Well, how are we going to find out whether they're the right fit? They're going to get coached and they're going to know exactly what to say to us and then we can't really measure. Um, but again, maybe we use technologies like video where we actually do give people set questions, ask them to produce a video and, and submit it through some kind of uh, portal that we have built into our system and, and there, there your, your processes are automatically more equal you know, because you've told people what you want them to respond to in your shortlist based on that, um, rather than them bringing them into a building or, um, you know, asking a set of prescribed questions, which are completely unreliable anyway, let's be honest. Uh, you know, it's not an exact science. It's, it's based on subjective opinion by and large anyway. So maybe it is time we just overhaul all of these things with the view to are they inclusive? We probably know that they're not inclusive already because, you know, look 
how our organizations are, um, you know, look at the people that we employ within our organizations. We already know our systems don't work. They, you know, they aren't necessarily open to inclusivity. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, and again, just from the conversation, there's so many things that, that people can do. So I suppose to kind of round it off nicely, it's always the big question we ask at the end of every podcast. Um, and I'll ask you both of them. I'll come to yourself first, Christabel, for this one. So any kind of final advice? I know we've shared tons of advice and fair play for, for so much in, but any kind of final advice for HR teams, leaders, organizations who do kind of want to make some positive steps in this regard? Where should they start? Or even more importantly, how do they assess how much more they need to do because a lot of companies out there are already doing some great things, but how can you assess what to do next? Yeah, so I would say to begin with, it's having the conversation. So I think, you know, if you haven't done disability awareness training yet, that would be the first thing that I would do just so you can open your eyes, um, maybe to some of the barriers that exist in the organisation and some of the very straightforward kind of fixes. Because uh, it can be daunting for people, but actually a lot of, of this stuff, it sounds like a lot when you go through it all. When you start to kind of pick away at it one by one, these are very simple and straightforward things. So like, as I mentioned earlier, we even in Employers for Change, we would provide training for organisations. It's free, it's free service um, for public or private. We cover things like your general disability awareness training, uh, your inclusive recruitment training, your inclusive comms, which is a big one as well for, particularly for internal comms for your staff. Um, so I would say start off there, you'll get our details on employersforchange.ie. And the second thing that I would say is, just take a look at your your hiring page. You know, if that's one thing you do today, just have a look, see kind of, you know, how accessible is it? There's a free, if you Google um, online uh, website accessibility checker, a free page will come up there. You literally just pop the URL for your page in and it will flag some of the key things that need to be changed. They're two very small things, but can have a huge impact. We are delighted to help anybody in any way we can. We'll do one-to-one. Um, if there's specific issues that an individual needs assistance working through. And we'll also do work with them on a wider scale as well. Brilliant. Anything to add from your perspective, Mary, about where to start, what to do next? Because as I think one of the key things Christopher said there is even these small things can make a big impact for people. So a lot of it is just starting somewhere, Mary, isn't it? Yeah, get get uh, diversity and inclusion on your agenda if it's not on the agenda already. Um, and go through the nine protected characteristics and really think what can we do in each area? Where can we spend our budget and put together an action plan, a strategy and an action plan, uh, develop your policy um, and reach out and, and speak to people out there that can help you in those areas. Uh, you know, I'm in HR a long time, Christabel, and I didn't know about all those grants. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners won't know about them either. And like you say, the fear um, around big adaptations in the workplace can act as a barrier all by itself because these things aren't publicized enough uh, and if HR people don't know about them um, you know realistically what will change internally in organizations if there's not that level of awareness out there so many HR people are tasked now with DI and um, you know it, setting up those networks helps hugely because you can put issues organizational issues like 
our recruitment process. How could we make that fairer? How could we make that more equal? How could we attract more people with disabilities? How can we encourage people within our organization to disclose something that uh, affects their whole being? Um, and they may need supports that could help them perform better uh, or help them do their job uh, in a way that's useful for them and for the organization as well. So, you know, putting those challenges back through those networks, uh, I think, could bring about powerful change. And certainly in any of the organizations um, where I've seen those networks working well, that's what they do. They put their policies in front of those networks and go look at look at the language um, you know is it inclusive how does that read to you how could we how could that read better look at our um, advertising what do you think of the language there how could we improve that how could we make that better it doesn't all have to come from the HR function it doesn't all have to come from the leadership team and um, you know if you're if you're working from the bottom up it's much more powerful than if you're working from the top down. 100%, and it's great to hear that there is so many things that HR teams, organizations, and employees, and groups, and even those ERGs and networks can do, because I suppose, again, as we said, even those small things can make a huge difference. And um, So it is very important to, to put something out there and start somewhere. So a huge thank you to, to Mary and Christabel for a very insightful discussion. Loads of advice shared there for companies big and small on different um, stages of their journey, so really appreciate the, the insights there. Uh, thank you to everyone for listening. Obviously, we'll catch you next week for the next installment of our podcast. So don't forget to click subscribe if you haven't already and join the discussion on our social media channels. And do feel free to join the discussion on this post in particular because there's a lot to be said here. We didn't even get to touch on on a lot of it. Such such a, a new amount of things to say, but hopefully we covered as much as we can. But do reach out to us for any further guidance and the same goes for Christabel and her team. And as always, for HR consultancy services and management you can trust, get in touch with us today anytime at insighthr.ie. Thank you, Mary, and thank you, Christabel. Thank you, Owen. I'm Christabel. Thanks for joining us today on the HR Room podcast, the podcast series from Insight HR that helps you create the human resources systems and workplace culture that's right for your business. For show notes and bonus content, go to www.insighthr.ie forward slash podcast. That's www.insighthr.ie forward slash podcast. We'd love it if you subscribe, like and share the show with any friends and colleagues who are looking for fresh ideas on how to create the ideal workplace for their business. And remember, if you need any HR support, get in touch with us at Insight HR. Whether it's conducting a complex workplace investigation, filling a gap by providing you with a virtual or an on-site HR resource, or providing advice via our HR support line, we'll help you resolve whatever human resources challenge your business is facing. Thanks, and see you soon.